This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. We continue our series 2019 to look ahead with a discussion about the European Union. March 29th, 2019 is the day that the United Kingdom is supposed to leave the EU, but some believe that may not happen. Brexit is just one of several important issues that the European Union leadership must deal with in 2019. They almost... They also must tackle various trade issues, the continuing migration crisis, and the growth of populism across the region, among other things, as well as a shaky relationship with the Trump administration. President Trump called the EU a foe of the United States when it comes to trade, and his administration downgraded the EU delegation in the U.S. without informing them. To delve into the issues surrounding the European Union heading into 2019, we are joined by João Gomes, who's a finance professor here at the Wharton School, and also on the phone, Garrett Martin, who is a professional lecturer at the American University School of International Science. João, great to see you again. Thanks for coming in. Great to see you. Thank you. Garrett, great to have you on the phone with us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so let's start with, with the Brexit, and we'll get into the other issues. Garrett, March 29th comes around. What are we talking about? Well, we're talking with uh, about a lot of uncertainty and really uh, ongoing developments as we speak. Um, the next deadline that we know is that Theresa May has scheduled that vote on uh, January 15th. And that was a vote that was supposed to take place in December, but she decided to back away because she was sure that she was going to face certain defeats. So there's going to be five days of debate now. Uh, it's still expected that the, you know, the parliament will turn down the vote. But she would have a chance to sort of submit it again a few times. You know, there are precedents uh, back in the 1990s. Uh, the Conservative Prime Minister, John Major, also suffered an initial defeat over the ratification of the treaty, but was able to bring it back to a vote a few days afterwards. Now, what happens after that expected initial defeat really is anybody's guess. There are a lot of different scenarios. If the defeat is overwhelming, it's quite possible that the opposition could submit a uh, vote of no confidence. And then if that passes, we would have the May government toppled and we may have new elections. Uh, It's also possible that that motion might not pass. And then you would have jockeying within the parliament to see if there's support for any kind of other options. But I think the, the main the nutshell here is that there is a huge degree of uncertainty what happens after that January 15 vote. Joam, your thoughts? I, I agree. Um, I do think, though, from the point of view of the European Union, Brexit is a little bit like a fire that has been contained. It's not a British problem. Um, I don't think the Europeans look at it as something that uh, is an existential threat anymore. Um, it is a mess for the UK, though, and it is a mess they have to they create it and they have to live with. And we may well have elections, but I, I don't think the, the union looks at this um, as, as anything that they need to especially worry about. They'll have to sort it out. The deadline is March 29th. If you don't agree, that's too bad. <laughs> it's even worse for you. I think the, that's the same view they have with respect to Italy. It's, it's a fire that's been sort of controlled. It's still a fire, but it's been, it's been controlled. I, I think as I look out to 2019, my biggest concerns are, are really the relationship with the U.S., and um, there's a little bit of a, th- you know, there's elections in Europe, by the way. Yeah. Um, there's a whole new leadership coming in Europe, which you mentioned briefly. We'll have a new head for the European Central Bank. We'll have a new head for European Commission. Uh, who knows what those are going to be? It's going to be some bargain between the Germans and the French, as it always is. These are two leaders that are 
Um, you know, Merkel's on her way out quite clearly. Who knows how long she's going to survive or she's going to be an effective leader. Macron's um, capital of goodwill has been exhausted. Yeah. He's no longer carrying that godlike status that uh, that um, made his presence and his speech so influential in the first year. And I think that's over. Uh, so this will be a year of realities. I think the internal threats are, from the point of view of the EU, largely contained. The real problem is what's our relationship with the rest of the world, with the US, with President Trump, what we're going to do with respect to trade, who's going to be our new leaders. And also, um, there's an election in the Ukraine, uh, which is not part of the union, but uh, it's a big issue to the east. Uh, what will we do when the Russians almost surely step up pressure on the Ukraine and... There's not much we can do. I mean, we clearly have a favorite. We would like uh, somebody who's close to us and will push for Ukraine membership of the EU. But what are we going to do faced with that external threat to the East? Um, so I think those are the big challenges coming for, for 2019. As much as Brexit will dominate the news, I think in the first few months, uh, it's really later after the Ukrainian election, after we get into the summer and we have the parliamentary elections in Europe, when we have a whole array of new leaders. Um, that I think the big questions come in for 2019. Garrett, I want to get your thoughts on the U.S. part of this uh, for a second, because obviously the president has made his commentary and, and his feelings known, uh, thinking that uh, the European Union has, to a degree, done a disservice to the United States. Uh, but it, it's on that front, it has really been somewhat quiet for the last few months. Do you expect that there is going to be a ramping up of the conversation about the relationship between the U.S. and the EU in 2019? I think it's, it's certainly quite possible. I mean, anything when it comes to the Trump administration is rather hard to predict. So I'm, I'm always very wary about making a forecast. Yeah. Now, it, it seems at, at the very least on the trade front that for the moment, the attention is much more consumed with China. Uh, you know, there was a truce that was signed uh, in November during the G20 summit an attempt to negotiate a more comprehensive trade deal in the next few months. So I think at least on the trade front, I don't anticipate major developments in the first part of the year. But it's quite possible that we might see Donald Trump again going after uh, the EU uh, on trade. He has threatened to put tariffs on, on car imports before. It's possible that he might invoke um, that again. Uh, certainly, I think the snub that was revealed yesterday with the downgrading of the status of the EU ambassador certainly shows that Trump has not a lot of warm feelings toward the EU and that that's unlikely to change in, 2020, in 2019. But I still think that at least on the trade front, uh, the focus is going to be on China for the foreseeable future. Yeah, the, the downgrading of the delegation is, is obviously, it's a story that's not getting a lot of play here in the United right. States right now because of other things. But yeah. but tell us just how important that is in the scope of relations between the two sides, Ram. I, I think, so it depends how you want to think, is the U.S. perspective, the European perspective. Um, I, I think the strategy from the U.S. is, of course, to 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 weaken the union, of course. That's, um, that's what I think of from the Europeans. There's these two external threats, these two powers to the East and to the West, the U.S. and Russia. They have the same interest to weaken the union, to make it ineffective, ultimately to destroy it. And is there the same existential threat to Brexit posed to Europe? The difference is the European leaders don't have any leverage on both sides, none. There's no ability to oppose Putin on the East, none. And there's no ability, as the economic performance 2008 just showed, there's enormous exposure to this potential trade war uncertainty that the European economy has that just renders the European Union completely unable to 
oppose in any significant way whatever the U.S. president wants. And I think um, this is a, the sort of snub that they just don't know what, what can they do. <laughs> Um, and ultimately, their economy is weakened. They absolutely need some sort of trade deal or reassurance. There's not going to be any tariffs that the deal between the U.S. and China is going to somehow remove uncertainty about global value chains and, and is going to eliminate whatever threats we have to German exports and European exports generally. Um, and, and the Europeans have no cards, no cards at all here. So how much then potentially, let's kind of mm -hmm. look out a, f a few yeah. months, If the United States does come to some agreement with China mm -hmm. on NA trade deal, how much potentially does that impact the relationship tr on the trade perspective between the U.S. and, and the EU? And, and does that give the EU a sense of, of what to expect from the United States moving forward? I, I, I agree a lot depends on what the U.S. president wants to do, and we don't know that. It could be that Donald Trump feels that two victories, NAFTA and China by then, are enough of a statement And whatever separates the U.S. from Europe is small potatoes. By and so there's not going to be much of a push, because the relationship with Europe is not obviously asymmetric in terms of trade. We don't have a particularly large imbalance. Uh, there's issues to discuss, but it's not the same priority. It could very well be that that's the case. In which in in, in which case, you know, there's not a lot to to uh, to deal with. Um, if Donald Trump wants to make an issue out of um, agricultural subsidies, for example, um, services, financial service, opening up those markets, the Europeans have a little bit of a problem. And I think a lot depends on how strong their economy is, um, into the, which doesn't look very good right now. Um, how much pain can they withstand? Um, I think we've But as I said, I, I think Donald Trump clearly has a strategy. It's very transparent of, you know, is in favor of Brexit. Why? Because that weakens the union, that that separates, that divides, that ultimately has him deal with maybe the French leader, maybe the German leader one-on-one, -on -one, yeah. not to the whole 300 and so million uh, consumers, citizens, voters. Um, Garrett, your thoughts? Well, I, I think I agree. I mean, it's, it's possible. I mean, again... I think I'm skeptical that there is going to be a major comprehensive agreement with the United States and China. Now, I may be proven wrong. I may end up with egg in my face in a couple of months' time, and I will own up to this. But I will be very surprised if we do have a comprehensive agreement between the United States and China, because the issues that separate both are fairly substantial when it comes to issues of access to the Chinese market or protection of intellectual property. We haven't really seen the Chinese very willing to make major concessions. Now, if that happens, if I'm proved wrong, that could put a little bit of pressure on, on the EU that its own stalled trade negotiations with the United States, as well as its own trade relations with China. Uh, and China is certainly an issue as well for the EU. That being said, what we've seen in the past year is that the EU has tried to diversify and it has tried to look for other trading partners. Uh, let's not keep, let's not forget that You know, last year, the EU did sign a very large free trade agreement with Japan. So I anticipate that the EU will continue to try and diversify and look for other major trading partners. They won't make up for the United States in terms of size, but nonetheless, it shows for the EU and to others that it has alternatives and it still has some commercial appeal. What about the leadership, Garrett, of the European Union moving forward? And, and I mentioned the elections coming up, and, and I think there was an expectation, if you go back maybe a year, uh, that Emmanuel Macron was probably going to be the face of the EU moving forward. 
once Angela Merkel stepped aside. And, and as João mentioned, uh, he's used up a little bit of that capital, especially in his in his homeland over the last uh, few months. No, absolutely. And I think that's one of the great challenges for the EU is the impression or the risk of appearing rudderless, of lacking a clear leadership. Angela Merkel was very much the face of the EU for the last 10 years, the period of crisis. So Macron was viewed as a possible candidate to take over the mantle, someone who would very much campaign and position himself as a pro-EU, pro-integration. Now, undoubtedly for Macron, some of the shine has been taken away from his internal problems. And I think that's one of the big issues that's true for Macron, but in more general sense, I think for the EU, is the fear that as has happened over the last few years, internal problems will mean that the EU will remain kind of navel-gazing, inward-looking, and will not be able to take a more active role on the international stage at a time when we are dealing with, as Jao has already alluded to, very serious challenges and very serious changes, whether it comes from the United States, which shows deep-seated ambivalence towards Europe and the EU under Trump, a, a more aggressive Russia, and a China that's flexing its muscles. The EU needs to be able to walk and chew gum at the same time, but that has been a big challenge. And the lack of leadership uh, could only exacerbate this problem in 2019, where a series of domestic internal problems is going to consume most of the EU's attention. And I think that would be very detrimental. Entirely agree. I think we, we keep saying the EU this, the EU that, but there is no real sense of what is the EU. I mean, there, there is different people who knows who's going to be in charge. And they, in any case, none of them will have the ability to, to influence the whole union. This is an ongoing discussion. Um, and, and it's very obvious that this, this union faces serious existential threats from the outside right now, and it needs some strong leadership and some clear vision of what it wants to accomplish. In my mind, I think the number one thing the European Union needs to decide is it needs to decide whether it wants to be a separate power on its own or it needs allies. It needs to align itself with one particular block. Um, that's a key decision. I think they've entirely, they've operated as if the, this whole creation is about creating a separate pillar of power in the world that can stand up to the US ultimately, to China, to Russia. I don't think that's realistic anymore. I think they need to come to grips with that. Um, they just need to come to grips with that. How significant, um, how significant is the issue of the growth of populism, Joam, in, in the European Union, in some of those countries over the last several months? I think, um, you know, I, I have always had a different view on populism. I, I think I, I think it, it reflects as we all kind of accept a, a, a show of dissatisfaction with the way the European Union has delivered for the citizenship. And, and I think we should be understanding of that. I think at the same time, it's fairly obvious at this stage that Europe is run collectively by some bureaucracy in Brussels and a series of treaties that are so tightly regulating the, the business activity, the political speech or, or, or connections between the states that it almost does not matter too much. Uh, I mean, we should listen to this as an expression of dissatisfaction, but in terms of actual impact on what has been decided, you look at the outcome of the Italian election, you look at the enormously populist government. And you look at how tied their hands are, and and you know that nothing is going to happen at the end. Um, so, I, I, but I think it's a it's a clear manifestation of how frustrating this experience has been to the citizenship of Europe. And, and I think it's very important that the people 
in Brussels, in, in, in Paris, in, in Frankfurt and Berlin, listen to it and pay attention and just say, look, we need to do better. And we need to do better means we just need to create more jobs and we need to deliver economic growth. That's always been to me the number one thing. Garrett, your thoughts? Well, I, I think it's, I mean, first of all, I think populism has been a long-standing issue uh, in, in European politics. I mean, you know, someone who grew up in France like myself, Uh, the National Front, as it was called, and now the National Rally, has been a part of the French political landscape for decades. It's now become maybe more prevalent across a variety of countries. But I think we have to be careful of, of, of assuming that it's a transient or new phenomenon. I think that's the first point. Secondly, I think the bigger problem for me is this broader trend across Western Europe of a fragmentation of the political landscape. In a sense, a lot of the other European countries are moving in the same direction of what has happened in the Netherlands, where you have multiple small niche parties that represent a tiny part of the electorate and are already struggling to govern. The populist parties have at times received a lot of support, but it's also been exacerbated by the fact that the traditional parties of government, the traditional center-right, center-left parties that dominated European politics after 1945, already declined. They struggled to attract the same number of voters. And that means that we have increasing coalitions, or we have situations, or we will have more situations like in Sweden, where the results are inconclusive, and there's an inability to form governments. That is at least the outcome that I anticipate that we'll see in the European Parliament elections in May, a messy outcome where, yes, the populists show some inroads, but not enough to gain a majority. The traditional center-left, center-right bloc will remain maybe the top two, but they will be weakened. Then they struggle to create a meaningful majority. I think that is a big issue for me down the line, is this sort of balkanization of fragmentation of politics in Europe. I think that could be very consequential. So then if they if populist parties are going to make some inroads, further inroads, Garrett, do you call this a, a, a little bit of a time of transition at this point? Yes, I think to a certain degree, I think that would be an, an adequate description. I mean, traditionally, and again, the most meaningful election, I think, this year in Europe might be the European parliamentary elections, actually. Uh, an election that traditionally did not gain a lot of attention, but this might be might be different. Uh, traditionally, the, the populist Eurosceptic parties came in with a clear agenda of being opposed, being virulently opposed to you. But what you might, what we have seen so far in the campaigning, and I think that's been very clear with someone like Matteo Salvini of La Lega in Italy, is that they want to actually do well in these elections. They want to create a populist, more nationalist bloc so that they can have a better, they, they can shape the, the future agenda of the EU. Uh, the European parliamentary elections are not only important for the power within the parliament, which is become more and more key institution, but it also plays a role in the jockeying of positions within the European Commission. So if you have a more populist, nationalistic uh, European Parliament, that might be reflected also uh, when it comes to the Commission, and that could really shape the policies and the agenda of the EU for years to come. Joam, your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I think the one thing the populists have never been able to do is work well across borders. Um, they've been successful on a country-by-country -country basis, but they just have not been able to cooperate with populists in other countries in effective ways. Um, and that is, of course, limited. And it plays right into the hands of sort of the central administration in Brussels um, that, you know, at the end of the day, again, um, doesn't really matter very much. 
um, the system will continue to run um, fine. I think that could change if the populist bloc becomes very large in the European Parliament to the point that it actually affects who who who's get picked as a commissioner and, and and so on. I I'm skeptical that will happen because again the issues that populism is easier within my country than <laughs> when I have to search for common things with with somebody in your country, but. Um, but it could happen. That's definitely a possibility. Um, and, and you said something about is this a time of transition? And I think that's fundamentally what it is. I think the union has to come to grips with how are we going to work effectively with 27 countries at the table, 28 maybe, who knows. Um, how are we going to, who exactly is in charge? Who, what exactly are the competencies that we're going to to have centrally and, and at the country level? And, and it's clearly a time of transition. We just, they just have not been able to sort that out. And, and I think they go from, and this is going to be another year in which de facto that's what we're going to do. We're going to slowly evolve this, figure out what's the best way to deal with this and to delegate powers and, and decision-making, um, and until somebody steps up and effectively assumes that mental in a particular position, I, I think the Constitution is too vague, the transfer of powers is just very ambiguous, um, it's just not a well-functioning unit right now. So then, then that brings up a question that we had talked about originally when uh, the Brexit started to, mm-hmm. to make news, uh, is how much impact with the UK seemingly moving away from the European Union, how much impact is that going to have on the other countries? And whether or not there would continue to be this this rise of disenchantment mm-hmm. with how the European Union has been run in various aspects. And so do we have to, again, bring that conversation back that potentially down the road we could see enough mm-hmm. angst in a country that it would want to separate itself from the European Union? I, I, yes, <laughs> very short answer. Yes, I think a lot of, as I, I said this a few times before, a lot of it depends on how economically successful this union is. This entire edifice was built on the idea of economic prosperity. Join us, be part of this union. We're going to make you rich and successful. Right. It's not delivering. It hasn't delivered for a lot of countries in the periphery. It hasn't delivered. That question will be asked again um, if we don't see meaningful economic growth in the next couple of years. And, and this is a serious threat. We, the economy, the world economy is slowing down. Europe is slowing down dramatically. This question will be asked again. The massive failure of the populists in England, if you want to call the conservative Brexiteers, is just have, they have not been able to sort of move that concept to the rest of Europe where they should. They really should. Yeah. Garrett, your thoughts? Well, I... I might slightly disagree because I think one aspect that the Brexit negotiations have revealed is even for a country like the UK, within the EU is one of the bigger players, even for them, it's been very apparent the lack of leverage that a country like that has in regard to the other 27 members. So you have to ask yourself, will the memory, will the experience of the Brexit negotiations act as a deterrent? for future countries that might consider the same path, that's certainly possible. Now, maybe five, ten years from now, let's say the UK has recovered and they are economically thriving while we have a sclerotic EU, it's possible that we might have more whispers of a country wanting to leave. But keep in mind also that the UK was an outlier and then for 40 years there was very robust Euroscepticism. So I think that's certainly one issue. One issue where I, I see a consequence for Brexit that hasn't gotten a lot of attention yet is 
the EU has a seven-year uh, budget cycle, and the next budget cycle will be from 21 to 2027. But already, the, and these budget negotiations are often quite ugly between countries. So with the e- UK being out of, of the EU, you will have a budgetary shortfall. And it will be interesting to see what will happen. Will other countries be agree to chip in and compensate, which is unlikely? Or will we have a smaller EU and a smaller uh, EU budget some countries are pushing? But of course, that might make it the EU less likely to be effective if it has fewer resources. So I think that's something to look forward to in 2019 will be the, the budgetary negotiations, which are always very uh, colorful. Before we ended this, I, I did want to touch on the migrant crisis, and, and obviously that was a, a story that made headlines for quite some period of time now. Garrett, where are we right now on trying to deal with the, 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 the numerous people that decided that they needed to get out of, of the Middle East and Africa to be able to try and find a better life? Well, I think a couple of points. First is this UN migration pact shows that the issue of migration is still very toxic and very divisive. A number of European countries have decided to not sign on and ratify a rather harmless uh, UN pact. So it shows the issue is still alive and kicking. It's still an issue that populists and others will try to mobilize. In terms of the situation, I think we're, we're removed from the more acute phase of 2015, largely because the EU has tried to externalize the management. They've tried to work with a variety of partners, be it Turkey, uh, be it North African countries, sometimes working with unsavory partners like tribal uh, to basically try to pay them off to contain the problem. That has worked to a certain degree. The numbers are down. But in a sense, if another crisis was to erupt again, the sense is that the EU is no better prepared than it was when it deal with a large influx of people. Jean, your thoughts? I think the crisis made it clear that there's no will amongst the citizens of Europe to absorb large numbers of migrants at this stage. I don't think that has changed. I think the politicians now are very well aware of that, though. And I think that's why they've, to some extent, outsourced uh, the management of this crisis, as Garrett said. I, I think um, you know that, that's probably where it's going to stay for a while. I don't think it's going to be as acute, as, in part because the, the civil war in Syria is not as also as, as, as dramatic as it was. Um, so I, it is an issue. I don't think it's going to be a massive issue in 2019. Right. Gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Joao, great seeing you again. Thank, thank you. you. Garrett, great to have you on the phone with us. Thank you, sir. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Dan. And thank you, Joao. Thank you. Jean Gomesh from uh, here at the Wharton School, Garrett Martin from American University. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 